Section 01 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Delmar H. Dolbeer. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1B, Section 01. Chapter 12, Part 1. Henry III. Most sciences, in proportion as they increase and improve, invent methods by which they facilitate their reasonings, and employing general theorems are enabled to comprehend in a few propositions a great number of inferences and conclusions. History, also, being a collection of facts which are multiplying without end, is obliged to adopt such arts of abridgment, to retain the more material events, and to drop all the minute circumstances which are only interesting during the time or to the persons engaged in the transactions. This truth is nowhere more evident than with regard to the reign upon which we are going to enter. What mortal could have the patience to write or read a long detail of such frivolous events as those with which it is filled, or attend to a tedious narrative which would follow, through a series of fifty-six years, the caprices and weaknesses of so mean a prince as Henry? The chief reason why Protestant writers have been so anxious to spread out the incidents of this range is in order to expose the rapacity, ambition, and artifices of the court of Rome, and to prove that the great dignitaries of the Catholic Church, while they pretended to have nothing in view but the salvation of souls, had bent all their attention to the acquisition of riches, and were restrained by no sense of justice or of honor in the pursuit of that great object. But this conclusion would readily be allowed them, though it were not illustrated by such a detail of uninteresting incidents, and follows indeed by an evident necessity from the very situation in which that church was placed with regard to the rest of Europe. For besides that ecclesiastical power, as it can always cover its operations under a cloak of sanctity, and attacks men on the side where they dare not employ their reason, lies less under control than civil government. Besides this general cause, I say, the Pope and his courtiers were foreigners to most of the churches which they governed. They could not possibly have had any other object than to pillage the provinces for present gain, and as they lived at a distance they would be little awed by shame or remorse in employing every lucrative expedient which was suggested to them. England, being one of the most remote provinces attached to the Romish hierarchy, as well as the most prone to superstition, felt severely during this reign, while its patience was not yet fully exhausted, the influence of these causes, and we shall often have occasion to touch cursorily upon such incidents. But we shall not attempt to comprehend every transaction transmitted to us. And till the end of the reign, when the events become more memorable, we shall not always observe an exact chronological order in our narration. The Earl of Pembroke, who at the time of John's death was Marshal of England, was by his office at the head of the armies, and consequently during a state of civil wars and convulsions at the head of the government. And it happened, fortunately for the young monarch and for the nation, 
that the power could not have been entrusted into more able and more faithful hands. This nobleman, who had maintained his loyalty unshaken to John during the lowest fortune of that monarch, determined to support the authority of the infant prince, nor was he dismayed at the number and violence of his enemies. Sensible that Henry, agreeably to the prejudices of the times, would not be deemed a sovereign till crowned and anointed by a churchman, he immediately carried the young prince to Gloucester, where the ceremony of coronation was performed in the presence of Gualo, the legate, and a few noblemen by the bishops of Winchester and Bath. As the concurrence of the papal authority was requisite to support the tottering throne, Henry was obliged to swear fealty to the Pope and renew that homage to which his father had already subjected the kingdom, and in order to enlarge the authority of Pembroke and to give him a more regular and legal title to it, a general council of the barons was soon after summoned at Bristol, where that nobleman was chosen protector of the realm. Pembroke, that he might reconcile all men to the government of his pupil, made him grant a new charter of liberty, which, though mostly copied from the former concessions extorted from John, contains some alterations which may be deemed remarkable. The full privilege of elections in the clergy, granted by the late king, was not confirmed, nor the liberty of going out of the kingdom without the royal consent. Whence we may conclude that Pembroke and the barons, jealous of the ecclesiastical power, both were desirous of renewing the king's claim to issue a congé d'élire to the monks and chapters, and thought it requisite to put some check to the frequent appeals to Rome. But what may chiefly surprise us is that the obligation to which John had subjected himself of obtaining the consent of the great council before he levied any aids or scutages upon the nation was omitted, and this article was even declared hard and severe and was expressly left to future deliberation. But we must consider that, though this limitation may perhaps appear to us the most momentous in the whole charter of John, it was not regarded in that light by the ancient barons, who were more jealous in guarding against particular acts of violence in the crown than against any general impositions which, unless they were evidently reasonable and necessary, could scarcely, without general consent, be levied upon men who had arms in their hands, and who could repel any act of oppression by which they were all immediately affected. We accordingly find that Henry, in the course of his reign, while he gave frequent occasions for complaint and with regard to his violations of the Great Charter, never attempted by his own will to levy any aids or scutages, though he was often reduced to great necessities and was refused supply by his people. So much easier was it for him to transgress the law when individuals alone were affected than even to exert his acknowledged prerogatives where the interest of the whole body was concerned. This charter was again confirmed by the king in the ensuing year, with the addition of some articles to prevent the oppression by sheriffs, and also with an additional charter of forests, a circumstance of great moment in those ages when hunting was so much the occupation of the nobility and when the king comprehended so considerable a part of the kingdom within his forests, which he governed by peculiar and arbitrary laws. All the forests which had been enclosed since the reign of Henry the Second were disafforested, and new perambulations were appointed for that purpose. Offences in the forests were declared to be no longer capital, 
but punishable by fine, imprisonment, and more gentle penalties. And all the proprietors of land recovered the power of cutting and using their own wood at their pleasure. Thus these famous charters were brought nearly to the shape in which they have ever since stood, and they were, during many generations, the peculiar favorites of the English nation, and esteemed the most sacred rampart to national liberty and independence. As they secured the rights of all orders of men, they were anxiously defended by all, and became the basis in a manner of the English monarchy, and a kind of original contract which both limited the authority of the king and ensured the conditional allegiance of his subjects. Though often violated, they were still claimed by the nobility and people, and as no precedents were supposed valid that infringed them, they rather acquired than lost authority from the frequent attempts made against them in several ages by regal and arbitrary power. While Pembroke, by renewing and confirming the Great Charter, gave so much satisfaction and security to the nation in general, he also applied himself successfully to individuals. He wrote letters in the king's name to all the malcontent barons, in which he represented to them that whatever jealousy and animosity they might have entertained against the late king, a young prince, the lineal heir of their ancient monarchs, had now succeeded to the throne, without succeeding either to the resentments or principles of his predecessor, that the desperate expedient which they had employed of calling in a foreign potentate had happily for them, as well as for the nation, failed of entire success, and it was still in their power, by a speedy return to their duty, to restore the independence of the kingdom, and to secure the liberty for which they so zealously contended, that as all past offences of the barons were now buried in oblivion, they ought, on their part, to forget their complaints against their late sovereign who, if he had been anywise blamable in his conduct, had left to his son the salutary warning to avoid the paths which had led to such fatal extremities, and that having now obtained a charter for their liberties, it was their interest to show by their conduct that this acquisition was not incompatible with their allegiance, and that the rights of king and people, so far from being hostile and opposite, might mutually support and sustain each other. These considerations, enforced by the character of honor and constancy which Pembroke had ever maintained, had a mighty influence on the barons, and most of them began secretly to negotiate with him, and many of them openly returned to their duty. The diffidence which Lewis discovered of their fidelity forwarded this general propension toward the king, and when the French prince refused the government of the castle of Hereford to Robert Fitzwalter, who had been so active against the late king, and who claimed that fortress as his property, they plainly saw that the English were excluded from every trust, and that foreigners had engrossed all the confidence and affection of their new sovereign. The excommunication, too, denounced by the legate against all the adherents of Lewis, failed not in the turn which men's dispositions had taken to produce a mighty effect upon them, and they were easily persuaded to consider a cause as impious for which they had already entertained an unsurmountable aversion. Though Lewis made a journey to France and brought over succors from that kingdom, he found on his return that his party was still more weakened by the desertion of his English confederates, and that the death of John had, contrary to his expectations, given an incurable wound to his cause. The earls of Salisbury, Arundel, and Warren, 
together with William Marischal, eldest son of the Protector, had embraced Henry's party, and every English nobleman was plainly watching for an opportunity of returning to his allegiance. Pembroke was so much strengthened by these accessions that he ventured to invest Mount Sorel, though, upon the approach of the Count of Perche with the French army, he desisted from his enterprise and raised the siege. The Count, elated with his success, marched to Lincoln, and being admitted into the town he began to attack the castle, which he soon reduced to extremity. The Protector summoned all his forces from every quarter, in order to relieve a place of such importance, and he appeared so much superior to the French that they shut themselves up within the city, and resolved to act upon the defensive. But the garrison of the castle, having received a strong reinforcement, made a vigorous sally upon the besiegers, while the English army, by concert, assaulted them in the same instant from without, mounted the walls by scalade, and, bearing down all resistance, entered the city sword in hand. Lincoln was delivered over to be pillaged. The French army was totally routed. The Count de Perche, with only two persons more, was killed, but many of the chief commanders and about four hundred knights were made prisoners by the English. So little blood was shed in this important action which decided the fate of one of the most powerful kingdoms in Europe, and such wretched soldiers were those ancient barons, who yet were unacquainted with everything but arms. Prince Louis was informed of this fatal event while employed in the siege of Dover, which was still valiantly defended against him by Hubert de Burr. He immediately retreated to London, the center and life of his party, and he there received intelligence of a new disaster which put an end to all his hopes. A French fleet, bringing over a strong reinforcement, had appeared on the coast of Kent, where they were attacked by the English, under the command of Philip d'Albinet, and were routed with considerable loss. D'Albinet employed a stratagem against them which is said to have contributed to the victory. Having gained the wind of the French, he came down upon them with violence, and throwing in their faces a great quantity of quicklime, which he purposely carried on board, he so blinded them that they were disabled from defending themselves. After this second misfortune of the French, the English barons hastened everywhere to make peace with the protector, and by an early submission to prevent those attainders to which they were exposed on account of their rebellion. Lewis, whose cause was now totally desperate, began to be anxious for the safety of his person, and was glad on any honorable conditions to make his escape from a country where he found everything was now become hostile to him. He concluded a peace with Pembroke, promised to evacuate the kingdom, and only stipulated in return an indemnity to his adherents and a restitution of their honors and fortunes, together with the free and equal enjoyment of those liberties which had been granted to the rest of the nation. Thus was happily ended a civil war which seemed to be founded on the most incurable hatred and jealousy, and had threatened the kingdom with the most fatal consequences. The precautions which the King of France used in the conduct of this whole affair are remarkable. He pretended that his son had accepted of the offer from the English barons without his advice, and contrary to his inclination. The armies sent to England were levied in Louis's name. When that prince came over to France for aid, his father publicly refused to grant him any assistance, and would not so much as admit him to his presence. 
even after henry's party acquired the ascendant and lewis was in danger of falling into the hands of his enemies it was blanche of castile his wife not the king his father who raised armies and equipped fleets for his succor all these artifices were employed not to satisfy the pope for he had too much penetration to be so easily imposed on nor yet to deceive the people for they were too gross even for that purpose they only served as a colouring to philip's cause and in public affairs men are often better pleased that the truth though known to everybody should be wrapped up under a decent cover than if it were exposed in open daylight to the eyes of all the world after the expulsion of the french the prudence and equity of the protector's subsequent conduct contributed to cure entirely those wounds which had been made by intestine discord he received the rebellious barons into favor observed strictly the terms of peace which he had granted them restored them to their possessions and endeavored by an equal behavior to bury all past animosities in perpetual oblivion the clergy alone who had adhered to lewis were sufferers in this revolution as they had rebelled against their spiritual sovereign by disregarding the interdict and excommunication it was not in pembroke's power to make any stipulations in their favor and gualo the legate prepared to take vengeance on them for their disobedience many of them were deposed many suspended some banished and all who escaped punishment made atonement for their offence by paying large sums to the legate who amassed an immense treasure by this expedient the earl of pembroke did not long survive the pacification which had been chiefly owing to his wisdom and valour and he was succeeded in the government by peter de roche bishop of winchester and hubert de burr the justiciary the counsels of the latter were chiefly followed and had he possessed equal authority in the kingdom with pembroke he seemed to be every way worthy of filling the place of that virtuous nobleman but the licentious and powerful barons who had once broken the reins of subjection to their prince and had obtained by violence an enlargement of their liberties and independence could ill be restrained by laws under a minority and the people no less than the king suffered from their outrages and disorders they retained by force the royal castles which they had seized during the past convulsions or which had been committed to their custody by the protector they usurped the king's demesnes they oppressed their vassals they infested their weaker neighbours they invited all disorderly people to enter in their retinue and to live upon their lands and they gave them protection in all their robberies and extortions no one was more infamous for these violent and illegal practices than the earl of albemarle who though he had early returned to his duty and had been serviceable in expelling the french augmented to the utmost the general disorder and committed outrages in all the counties of the north in order to reduce him to obedience hubert seized an opportunity of getting possession of rockingham castle which albemarle had garrisoned with his licentious retinue but this nobleman instead of submitting entered into a secret confederacy with Fauque de Brote, peter de morlion and other barons and both fortified the castle of biam for his defence and made himself master by surprise of that of fotheringay pandulph who was restored to his legateship was active in suppressing this rebellion and with the concurrence of eleven bishops 
he pronounced the sentence of excommunication against Albemarle and his adherents. An army was levied, a scutage of ten shillings a night's fee was imposed on all the military tenants, Albemarle's associates gradually deserted him, and he himself was obliged at last to sue for mercy. He received a pardon, and was restored to his whole estate. This impolitic lenity, too frequent in those times, was probably the result of a secret combination among the barons, who could never endure to see the total ruin of one of their own order, but it encouraged Fox de Brote, a man whom King John had raised from a low origin, to persevere in the course of violence to which he had owed his fortune, and to set at naught all law and justice. When thirty-five verdicts were at one time found against him on account of his violent expulsion of so many freeholders from their possessions, he came to the court of justice with an armed force, seized the judge who had pronounced the verdicts, and imprisoned him in Bedford Castle. He then levied open war against the king, but being subdued and taken prisoner, his life was granted him, but his estate was confiscated, and he was banished the kingdom. Justice was executed with greater severity against disorders less premeditated, which broke out in London. A frivolous emulation in a match of wrestling between the Londoners on the one hand and the inhabitants of Westminster and those of the neighboring villages on the other occasioned this commotion. The former rose in a body and pulled down some houses belonging to the abbot of Westminster. But this riot, which, considering the tumultuous disposition familiar to that capital, would have been little regarded, seemed to have become more serious by the symptoms which then appeared of the former attachment of the citizens to the French interest. The populace in the tumult made use of the cry of war commonly employed by the French troops, Montjoy, Montjoy, God help us and our Lord Louis. The justiciary made inquiry into the disorder, and finding one Constantine Fitzarnulf to have been the ringleader, an insolent man, who justified his crime in Hubert's presence, he proceeded against him by martial law, and ordered him immediately to be hanged, without trial or form of process. He also cut off the feet of some of Constantine's accomplices. This act of power was complained of as an infringement of the Great Charter, yet the justiciary, in a parliament summoned at Oxford, for the great councils about this time began to receive that appellation, made no scruple to grant in the king's name a renewal and confirmation of that charter. When the assembly made application to the crown for this favor, as a law in those times seemed to lose its validity if not frequently renewed, William de Brewere, one of the council of regency, was so bold as to say openly that those liberties were extorted by force and ought not to be observed but he was reprimanded by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and was not countenanced by the King or his chief ministers. A new confirmation was demanded and granted two years after, and an aid amounting to a fifteenth of all movables was given by the Parliament in return for this indulgence. The King issued writs anew to the sheriffs, enjoining the observance of the charter, but he inserted a remarkable clause in the writs, that those who paid not the fifteenth should not for the future be entitled to the benefit of those liberties. End of section 01, chapter 12, part 1. Recording by Delmar H. Dolbear.